0: Christ is risen and Tiger Woods is in town, which is important to me. Sorry, I'm not like that sports guy that's always going to bring you like the sports analogies and like, isn't the Christian life like this? You're welcome. And even when I say, like, I, I'm not a sports guy, I like sports, I enjoy them. I've never had the kind of brain that, like, remembers players' names and stats, and don't you remember when? And I go, yeah, yeah, but I don't. That's, that's just not me. With the exception of one Tiger Woods. I, uh, I grew up playing golf. I love golf. Um golf to me is, a, is almost a, like a sentimental thing. My dad taught me how to play. And being taught by your dad to play golf and then growing up playing golf and watching Tiger Woods play golf meant that Tiger wasn't just some guy who played golf and was really good. Like, Tiger is golf. And, so, I mean, I'm going to have to go talk to a therapist to unravel some of this at some point um, because I got to go on Friday to watch Tiger Woods play at the PGA Championship that's here in Tulsa at Southern Hills this weekend, just so we're all up to speed. And uh, it was super last minute. A friend of mine had put a message out there like, hey, does anybody have any tickets? And I messaged him quick. I was like, hey, if you find anything, let me know. Like, we'll go in like halfsies on something, whatever we need to do. And his wife just happened to remember at about 11 o'clock at night on Thursday evening that she has a friend who is like the head's groundskeeper at Southern Hills. So she sends him a text message and he sends me something back at 1130. He's like, here's your ticket. Let's go. So uh, get to get in for free on Friday, walked onto the course and had n- I've never been to Southern Hills. You don't walk in through the front gate, you walk in through some kind of strange gate that's behind a hole like number eight or something. So you walk on and you have no idea where you are, where anything is, who are these guys out here playing? And we just so happened to walk up on a group of guys that I was like really excited to see. So we watched them for a while. And then of course the buzz starts and they're like tigers getting ready to tee off. So everybody is crowding at hole number one where he's getting ready to start. And if you're not familiar with golf, you have a tee where you start, you generally have a fairway where you hit, then you have a green where you're trying to end up and put it in the hole, fundamentals of golf. So huge crowd of people in the gallery up by number one tee, another huge mass of people in the fairway around where most guys are hitting their tee shots, and then the green is just covered in people. We end up in no man's land, right? Like there's too many people to try to make this happen for us. So we're standing in the fairway, but it's way short of where most people are gonna hit their drives. And I say to my friends, hey, we're not gonna be close to where Tiger hits his shot, but at least we'll get to see him walk by. And as I say that, Tiger tees off and puts his drive into the tree that we're standing under and his ball lands right in front of us. Amazing moment, right? Worth applauding in my mind. And so here was some interesting dynamic of what happened. Because we're in no man's land, right? Like nothing is supposed to be happening here. And there's this kind of like air of generosity among the people that are watching. Like some people are stepping up to the rope, some people are just kind of hanging back. Like nobody is really occupied with occupying any certain part of land, right? We're all just kind of here enjoying each other. Some people are drinking their $18 beers, whatever. (laughs) As soon as Tiger's ball hits the tree and drops down, suddenly nobody move, nobody move. Even when the guy comes over to you who's wearing like the blue shirt and the lanyard, and he's like, everybody back up, everybody back up. This is how people took five big steps backward. Because <laughs> nobody wants to move, right? Suddenly, and this was the dynamic that I witnessed, All of us who are just kind of outsiders, just gazing in, peering in on this game that's happening, hoping to catch a glimpse of something really cool. Suddenly, us outsiders, we were like kind of the insiders. Like we were the people that Tiger was going to walk over to and that Tiger was going to have to tell like, hey, can you step back? Can you guys move over here? And there were some of us, because of where he hit the ball, that got to step over the line where you're not supposed to go into the territory that's now total insider territory, and you got to stand and watch. And trust me, no one who was an insider was interested in making room for anyone else on the outside. (laughs) That's something of what we're seeing in the gospels today. Hear that line from Jesus again. We will come to them and make our home with them. We will come to them. This is totally opposite of the way that we usually think spirituality works. We generally think that we are people who are in need of salvation, in need of saving, and in order for that to happen... We have to be the ones who go. We have to be the ones who journey toward Christ. And then it's somewhere along the journey we arrive at where we think God wants us to be. We are the ones who make this journey from being the outsiders to becoming the insiders. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, for those who desire to love God, God will come to them and make his home with us. This is the good news today. Willie Jennings, he's a brilliant, brilliant theologian. He is a professor at Duke Divinity School, and he wrote this article. If you wanted to look it up later, you can find it. It's called Overcoming Racial Faith. And he's talking about the way that the Western church in particular has done a really terrible job at remembering that we are Gentiles. He says, we have forgotten that we were the people who were outside. We were the people who were on the margins. We were not part of, in Israel's history, the people of God who were at the center of God's activity and life. That wasn't us. We were the people at the margins. We were the people on the outside that Jesus goes to and brings us in. And part of what we need to recover, he says, is the joy and the grace at being people who were once on the outside and were brought in. But he says this is generally the movement of the Western church, is that even though we were outsiders. And even though we have been brought in, what we have done as outsiders who have brought into the inside is rather than moving back to the outsides, rather than moving back out to the margins and bringing more people in, what we have done is we've decided we are going to be the gatekeepers of the inside. That we've gone from being people who are graciously, generously, generously, mercifully being brought in to the life of God. Now we see ourselves as people who are at the center. A couple quotes from Willie Jennings. He says part of what we need is we need to reclaim the space of what he calls the thinking margin. Margin the thinking margin, those spaces on the outside of the centers of life and the centers of power, the centers of structures. And he says that this is thinking from the site where you can see the operations of power, the operations of oppression and spy out the possibilities for freedom. He says this is the hope of the church in the 21st century, is that we can get far enough away from centers of power and centers of control and centers of oppression to actually see them for what they are. And that when we can see them for what they are, then we can start to find these paths toward freedom for people. And he says that without thinking from here, from that space, from that thinking margin, without thinking from there, we only operate under calls to conformity. That the only kind of dynamic we understand within the world is that if people want to be brought in, they have to look like us. Because again, we are the gatekeepers. And so we operate with these calls to conformity rather than invitations to liberation. That we are people who have been freed by the gospel. And now, as the people who are free, we set all of these gates and limitations on anybody else who wants to come in. One of the interesting things that we experienced in Israel, and when you talk to Jewish people in Israel, there's this idea of, of Zionism. And we're familiar with us with this idea. We're, we're generally familiar with this idea as a kind of evil, because we can only think in terms of like Christian Zionism. And even that in and of itself is, is kind of confusing, especially to Jewish people. That, that's like an oxymoron. Doesn't make sense. Christian Zionism. Zionists... in in terms of the Jewish people are all over the spectrum from the most conservative, most orthodox, all the way to the most progressive Zionists in their eyes are just people who think that Israel has the right to exist. that Jewish people have the right to be here (laughs) as a people. But one thing that was interesting that we saw from people all over that spectrum, from the most conservative to some of the most progressive was this posture. They said that for the last 2,000 years, we've tried being the people on the margins. We've tried being the submissive people in the world, out for other people's blessing. And then they say this, and look where that got us. We're done with that. Now we're in a place of power and control, and we're going to hold on to it and do everything we can to maintain it. This is a kind of microcosm of what I think we see in the larger Western culture, that we are people who have found ourselves at the center of power, at the center of life and society. And the posture that we're invited into is not to be the people who say, yes, we're gonna do everything we can to keep this power, to maintain control, to see my will be done in the world, everyone else be damned. The call, the posture that we're invited into is to be people who were once on the outside, who have been brought to the inside, who have to move back out to the margins in order to make room for everyone else. Another line from Willie Jennings. He says that we have decided we should look at the world as though we were at the center of it and not at the margins with a man named Jesus. He says, we forget that we were Gentiles, the real heathens. A Christian world was turned upside down, he says, in the 20th and 21st century. The Christian world was turned upside down and remade in our image. He says, we should have understood that becoming Christian meant a permanent opening of our identities toward those whom God would send into our lives because it was exactly that opening that made us Christian in the first place. This, he says, is what we have forgotten, is that by the very fact that we are Christian means we are people who were invited in to the story that God is telling in the world. And when we forget that, when we forget that we were the ones who were invited in not who earned being here, not who deserve to be here. We were the ones who were invited. He says, when you forget that, we start acting out in ways that are unfaithful to the gospel, in ways that actually do harm to our neighbor. So, a couple thoughts. Using that kind of framework of remembering that we are outsiders who have been brought in, who are called back out to the margins. One of our texts for today is out of Acts chapter 16 beginning in verse 9 and I'll give you a bit of a summary of this I won't read it verbatim but in this moment in this in this story this passage Paul is dreaming and he has a vision of this man from Macedonia and in his dream this man from Macedonia says to Paul come help us And so what do they do? Of course, they cross over to Macedonia, which they were, this is interesting, which I will stop to tell you this. They were in Asia and every time they tried to move into a community and spread the gospel, they found some kind of resistance. And the resistance wasn't from the people, it was the spirit. Isn't that fascinating? That The Holy Spirit is actually preventing them from doing the very work they feel like God is calling them to do. And so while they're grinding away, trying to push their way into Asia, here's this person in Macedonia, which if you don't know is in in Europe, who says, come and help us in a dream. (laughs) This stuff's crazy. So they set sail, they end up in Neapolis, and then from there they go to Philippi, And in Philippi is a Roman colony, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And so they've arrived. They're at the place where they feel like God is drawing them and calling them. And so he's looking for the man, right? This is the way the story sets itself up, that a man has come to Paul in a dream and says, come to Macedonia, come and help us. And this is something of how prayer works at times, sometimes in dreams, sometimes in visions, sometimes in our subconscious. And part of what we have to learn to trust is getting a feel for what it is that God wants for us and from us. What is it that we can trust in those dreams, and in those visions, and in those subconscious moments where we feel oppressing on our lives toward other people. And of course, Paul follows that impulse, he follows this nudging, he follows this dream that he has. And he's looking, he's, he's trying to find this man who needs his help. And then here's what happens in the story. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city, worshipped God and was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul, and after she and her household were baptized... Then she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. So they're looking for a man. And we would expect, story-wise, to find out who this man is. And they find themselves inside the city. And then there's this dramatic move where on the Sabbath day, they go outside of the city, outside of the place where they feel like God has called them, outside of the city in Macedonia, and they go out by the river to find a place for prayer. And while they're praying, it's a woman who hears these prayers begins to worship God and to receive what Paul is saying, and she's baptized, and she invites them into her home. Somehow, in their going out away from the city in their faithfulness to what they can understand, it leads them to this woman, to Lydia. Not a man. And she is the one who the gospel is open to. She is the one who gets invited in. And then she does this. Because she has heard a word of freedom, And because she has been now baptized and brought in to be included in that story, her response is hospitality. That somehow, when we open our lives to those on the margin, what we see in lives that are really transformed is openness, is hospitality your hospitality to the people who you aren't expecting, to the people who you are not looking for, to the people that you think least deserve your openness and hospitality. If given time, we'll see their lives transformed and will return back with an openness toward others. This is the move of the gospel. There's more that I wanna say about it being on the Sabbath and how they leave the city but this isn't the time. It's interesting that when you look at the scriptures, there are all these little section titles. Those, those weren't always there. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we added those later just to make it a little easier. But this whole section that we're reading, this whole story about Paul being in Asia and kind of getting frustrated and then having this dream of this man and then rushing off across the sea to Macedonia and then coming across this woman named Lydia who invites them into their home. This whole section is under this banner, the evangelization of Europe. It's Lydia's openness and her hospitality, this this person that they were not expecting to find that somehow becomes the gateway for all of Paul's mission and all of Paul's work and the gospel of the Lord to be spread into all of Europe. We don't know the people that we're hospitable to, that we're open to, what kind of things they might open up onto the world, what kind of gifts they make possible for the world that otherwise, if we withhold our hospitality, if we withhold our openness, we might rob the world of that gift. Our final text for today comes out of Revelation, which is always a little spooky. Hang with me. This is Revelation 21, so this is the very end of the book. And of course, when we read this, we, we tend to think, well, as people in 21st century think. The, the end of the book is the climactic ending, right? Like, that's why it's there. It's to give us a kind of resolution to all of this. So we may have some kind of dramatic peak, but Revelation's going to really, like, tidy this whole thing up and <laughs> make it really clear <laughs> what to expect. That's not why Revelation is where it is in the scriptures. The, the organizers of the canon and some of our confirmation folks have gotten this spiel in the last week. The reason Revelation is where it is is not because it's like this dramatic, swooping, climactic ending. They tuck Revelation in the back, hoping like, "Ah, maybe they won't realize it's there. (laughs) Maybe they'll miss this one. (laughs) Lots of controversy about Revelation. I love Revelation. We're going to talk more and more about Revelation in the days ahead. But here is this vision. This is of the new Jerusalem. And the text for today says this, that God shows me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Notice the direction. The the holy city of Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. And then it goes on and jumps over to say that I did not see a sanctuary. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb were its sanctuary. There's no need for the temple in God's new world because the temple is everywhere where God is, and God is with us everywhere. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the book of life." Notice a couple of things. One, in this city, again, there is no temple, which is shocking for Jewish readers of this text, right? That there is no temple, but the temple is everything. But this is showing us the way that God is the temple and that God is filling all things. Then notice that there is a gate. There are walls. There's boundaries to this city. But what does the text say? That the gates will never be shut by day. And then this is a a typical move in the book of Revelation to always escalate. The gates will never be shut by day, and it will never be night, which is a way of saying the gates to this city are always open. And then it says that there's a river that runs from the throne in the center of this city. And on either side of this river are trees that are growing. And why are they growing? Because it says that the leaves and its fruit are for the healing of the nations. And it says that the kings of the earth will enter into this city to bring their glory. Now, you could go back and do this today if you wanted to spend your afternoon reading all the way through Revelation, I'd encourage you to do so. It'd be a great way to spend your Sunday afternoon. But up until this point, you'll just have to take my word for it because none of you are going to do this. Up until this point, every time the kings of the earth are mentioned and every time the nations are mentioned, they're either being destroyed or obliterated. But here, when the new city is established, the reason it exists, the reason the river runs out of this city is for the healing of the nations and to bring the kings of the earth in with their glory. N.T. Wright says that this this is not the totality of God's kingdom. This is not the kind of climactic ending that we think of that like this is the scene and we're going to live in this scene forever. He says it's something else altogether. He says this is part of the future, but we should see this as a future that we're working ourselves into. This is what he says about it. He says this city is not the totality of God's eventual new world. It is the focal point of a world which will finally see God's light and discover God's healing. And then he says that these kinds of images, that they're they're vital in order to beckon us along the way, but he says they do more for us. He says they actually work backwards, as it were, that it's working toward us, shedding light on what he calls our present darkness. Essentially, what he's saying is, if this is the world that we're going to find ourselves in, we might as well get used to it now. If we're going to live in a world where there are gates and there are walls to the city, there are boundaries, but the gates are always open, we might as well live like it now. So that when we do end up in this eventual new world that God is creating for God's self, We can be happy inhabitants of this space. We can be people who can rejoice inside the walls of this kingdom as the goodness of the kingdom is actually flowing away from us. Think about that. The inhabitants of the city are people who always know that the trees and the fruit that grows here is not for my health and my well-being. It's for the health and the well-being of the people who are outside the city. That the rivers that nourish us and run through this place, yes, we can draw water from them, but they're always rushing past us to people that are outside of the walls. That kind of posture has to be learned. It doesn't come naturally to us because we're people who want to gatekeep. We're people who want to see ourselves as the outsiders and make sure everybody who's outside knows They're the outsiders. So what does this look like? I don't think this is just about kindness. I don't think this is just about Southern hospitality, being kind to people. It is at least in part that we ought to be kind to one another. We ought to bandage one another's wounds. But I think it looks deeper. I think it, it looks like healing, even healing for those that we don't think deserve healing. This final story I'll share with you. This was published in the Washington Post in 2016. Again, you can go look this up. And it's about a person whose name was Sergeant Joseph Cerna. And Sergeant Cernas spent about 20 years in the Army as a Green Beret, and he saw some stuff, as you can imagine, somebody who spends 20 years in the services would. He, he experienced four different tours in Afghanistan. He had three near-death experiences. One was a, a suicide bomber, one was a roadside bomb, and then the final one was uh, an accident where his truck veers off of the road and they end up in a creek and, and the truck is submerging itself into the waters and he's with his team of people, and another one of the soldiers that was with him sees a pocket of air and realizes there's only room for one person, and so he undoes sergeant cerna's belt he takes off his body armor and he pushes him up into the pocket of air and Cern is the only one who survives this accident. So he comes back to the states, he's wrestling through all of this PTSD and these things that he's experienced and like most people who experience these kinds of things is just having a hard time assimilating back into life, right? So he's drinking, he ends up with a DUI, and he gets placed in a veterans, um, what's the name of it? It's essentially a, a veterans treatment court program where you make yourself accountable to a judge. And over 25 times, he comes and presents himself before this judge. His name is Judge Oliveira to check in on his progress, to make sure he's staying sober, to see how he's doing. And at one of these appearances, before Judge Oliveira, Sergeant Cerna says to him, I lied to you about my last drug test, because I wasn't sober. I lied to you. So Sergeant Cerna, in this moment of honesty, he gets this sentence from Judge Oliveira. Judge Oliveira sentences him to one day in prison. So he goes and he does what he needs to do to get ready to be taken off to prison. And the person who shows up to drive him to the prison is Judge Oliveira. He says, get in the car. We're going to go turn ourselves in. So he drives him to the prison. They get Sergeant Cerna checked in, and they whisk him off to his cell. He sits down on the one-man cot, and the doors close and lock behind him. But he's not there for maybe 60 seconds before he hears the door start to rattle, and it opens again, and there is Judge Oliveira. And he steps into the cell with Sergeant Cerna the door closes and locks behind him and he sits down on the cot with him and he stays there for the whole day. And he says, there was something about seeing Sergeant Cerna and knowing that he's wrestling with all these demons. He said, I had to be the person who judged him, but I couldn't judge him and not suffer with him. Said, so I stayed with him and we talked and we talked and we talked until the doors opened and we could go free. This is the good news for us. That God is the God who judges us. But that same God who judges us is the one who suffers with us in our judgment. That he goes with us, even behind locked doors and places of isolation until those doors can be opened. And that's the kind of move that we're called to participate in in the world, that we become people who journey with other people, even when it leads us behind locked doors, and we stay with them, remaining open to them as a person, as a human being created in God's image, and we remain hospitable until those doors can be opened and we can walk into freedom together. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God.